Hebrews 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the words of the song that all our sins are forgiven, that we've been washed in the blood. This is our hope, O God, that you, Lord Jesus, have reconciled us to your Father by your blood and by your righteous life. And we give you praise. And we thank you, Spirit of God, that you gave us faith that we would turn from our sin and turn to you. And we thank you, Father, that you have accepted us and declared us forgiven and righteous. Our triune God, we seek you and we seek your face and we ask for your blessing upon this time of considering your word. Lord, be not silent, but speak to us, deal with our hearts, transform our lives, and grant that we may live the reality that you, Lord Jesus, are our Lord. We pray for our children and children's worship and plead with you, O God, that you will set them free to abandon themselves to you. We pray that you will use the message to bring them to yourself. And would you do this, that you, Lord Jesus Christ, will receive all the glory we ask in your name. Amen. I want to ask a question to, to start out this morning and just kind of consider, what does it mean when we say, Jesus is Lord? What, is that, what does that mean? Is that just a statement in, in which we're, we're declaring what his title is? Kind of like we might say that Vince is pastor of Providence, Right? Not to equate the two, but, but recognizing that it's just a title, right? And, and it could be just a title of, of, of God. And, and it is true, right? Jesus is Lord. There's no question about that. Whether or not we have bowed the knee to him or not, he's still Lord. And so there is that declaration. But is that all there is? Is it an honorific title? Kind of like one you might use for Dr. Taylor Swift, which if you were watching the news this last week, you'd recognize is a valid title because she was given an honorary doctorate from New York University this last week. So it's, it's accurate that she's Dr. Taylor Swift, but it's really just an honor, right? We, we recognize that. Is, that. is that all it is? Clearly not. It's, it's more than that. But, but there is an honor to saying he is Lord, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. I would suggest to you that when, when you say Jesus is Lord... It is pronouncing your allegiance to him as the sole ruler of your life. Right? When I say Jesus is Lord, I am saying Jesus is the only one who rules in my life. As we might, you know, say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, we would be pledging allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme ruler of all of my life. He's the one that is in charge and guides me. We've been looking at uh, Hebrews 1, and uh, what we see in, in Hebrews 1 is uh, the, the author of Hebrews is, is presenting the, the divinity of Jesus more clearly than in any other place in, in all of Scripture. He's just spelling out Jesus is God, and this is what it means, and has been going through that throughout this entire chapter. In verses 5 through 14, he's drawn, a, if you will, a, a microscope 
scope upon one element of, of the deity of Christ, and that is his majesty, that is his, his divine greatness. And uh, he's drawing our attention to that so that we would see the majesty of Christ. And he shows it in three different ways. He shows us in, in 5 through 9 the majesty of Christ, that he is the Son of God. And so that there's no question about that. That's who he is. And then in verse uh, uh, 10 through 12, which we looked at last week, he's not just the Son of God, he's also the creator. And the majesty of Jesus in being the creator of all that is. And then in verses 13 and 14, he draws our attention unto the fact that he is our Lord. And not just the Lord, but I think it's very, very personalized. I think we need to personalize it. That we're not just saying that, that this is a title that he has. It's not an honorific element. But it's a declaration that it is my personal relationship with him in which he is my Lord. And I want us to meditate on that uh, this morning. And, and there are a, a couple different implications of that that I want us to consider. That if Jesus is our Lord, I think there are two truths that ought to affect our lives and a way in which that ought to affect our lives. And the first is that if he is Lord, then we need to honor our king. To honor our king. Look at verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This whole idea of sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet is a declaration of Jesus as king. He is, he is the one who is enthroned. The picture of where is he sitting at the right hand? It's a throne by which he's ruling over all of creation. And so this is the imagery that uh, the writer has used, who's actually quoting a, a psalm at that point, to remind us of the status that Jesus has. The challenge that we have in, in understanding this passage in our context is, as Americans, we don't really like kings, right? That is a, a significant part of, of our existence as a nation, is the fact that we, we, we don't like the idea of royalty. Matter of fact, at the time of the American Revolution, that was a, a prominent theme in, in the writings and discussions that were taking place among Americans, was the idea that what makes us think that one individual, simply because they have certain parents, that that person is qualified and capable of leading others, and others should be their subjects. It made no sense to the, the, the founding fathers of our nation as a matter of fact, there was uh, the pamphlet that was uh, at that time very popular, uh, it was incredibly influential, was Common Sense by Thomas Paine, and that's a part of what he dealt with was the whole idea of, of uh, a hereditary monarchy, that it didn't make any sense. And he writes about it in this way. He says, But there is another and greater distinction for which no truly natural or religious reason can be assigned, and that is the distinction of men into kings and subjects. Male and female are the distinctions of nature. Good and bad are the distinctions of heaven. But how a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into and whether they are the means of happiness or of misery to mankind. And that's what he proceeds to do in Common Sense, particularly that second section, in beginning to, to consider how would we ever come up with this idea? And this is, this is our culture. This is the air that we breathe. I mean, it seems like one of the first lessons that we learn as a child is kings are bad, right? Uh, we, we, we learn things like democracy. Democracy's right. People need to vote. And, and, and we, we, we learn the idea of uh, the, the majority rules. And, and we understand that. And, and that becomes just the way that we look at life. And so then to think of Jesus as king 
if we're honest, it doesn't always sit well. And so I want us to, 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 instead of allowing our culture to guide our thinking of king, let's allow the scripture, which presents Jesus as our king, to guide us and to understand what that means. As a matter of fact, in our uh, shorter catechism, we're, we're told that there are three offices that Jesus fulfills as our redeemer. And those three offices are prophet, priest, and king. And in the 26th question of the shorter catechism, which we'll get to in June, um, we're asked the question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is that he executes the office of a king in first, subduing us to himself. The first way that he functions as our king is he comes into our life, and if you will, he conquers us, right? He, he brings us to himself. That's the very first thing. We who were dead in sin, he makes us alive and gives us faith, and we respond by believing and trusting in him. That's where the beginning is. That's the first thing that he does. And it goes on to say, and the second is that he, does, he uh, executes the office in ruling and defending us that he rules us and defends us, that he has this responsibility in giving us the rules for our life and in protecting us from those who would come against us. And finally, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And we'll look at that last one here in a little bit. I simply want us to, to be aware and to recognize that the concept of Jesus as king is not only uh, common in our theology, but it's also prevalent throughout the word of God. And so as we're considering this together, let's allow that idea of Jesus as our king to affect us. Let's, let's recognize that that means that he is exalted, that he is exalted as king. And it's the father who exalted him. Look what it says. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Why is Jesus seated at the right hand of the father? Because the father said to him, sit at my right hand, right? He's invited to go there. It is the Father who appointed him to be in that position. It is the Father who has declared that is the rightful place for him to be. It is the Father who has declared that he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Let's consider this idea of right hand for just a moment and see what exactly it means. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament speaks of the word uh, translated right hand as meaning it's, it's symbolic of divine power. To be seated at God's right hand is symbolic of God the Father's very power, and it's showing that divine power that Jesus has. I want to look at uh, three different uh, places that, that we can begin to, to see this idea of, of the right hand uh, being worked out, but I want to start out by, by noticing how he prefaces that. To which of the angels has he ever said? And we know what that means, right? The answer is none of them. None of them have even come close to getting this point of exaltation. This exaltation which is given to Jesus. Think about the exalted position of angels, right? Remember Isaiah? He saw the Lord seated in his throne, and his glory filled the temple. And what was going on around him? There were angels that were in his presence, these angels were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. Spending all of their time declaring the greatness of God, be aware of his presence, in his presence. That's an exalted position, right? It's a highly exalted position. But they had six wings because they had to cover their eyes with two of them. 
and they had to cover their feet with two of them. So they only flew with two of those six wings because of how exalted the Lord Jesus Christ is, far above all of the angels. Well, let's consider what this, this idea of uh, right hand means by looking, first of all, in, in Exodus chapter 15, in the song of Moses, after they'd been uh, delivered and, and had crossed the, the Red Sea, uh, Moses wrote this. He says, Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So the exaltation of Jesus is the exaltation so that he is the very power of God himself. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is the extension of the Father's divine power. In Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, you remember the scene that, that Stephen is being put to death for his faith. He's testified faithfully about the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Jews will have none of it, and they are choosing to put him to death. And if you remember, as the stones are coming, he looks up into heaven in verse 55, and being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That at this moment in which he's facing death, in which he's facing martyrdom, in which the rocks are coming at him and the crowd is crying out, gnashing their teeth to destroy him, he is given a vision of Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father. Exalted to the point that he's also standing up that Stephen might be aware that he is there awaiting him. And that from the right hand of the Father, he will reach out his hand and receive Stephen into his eternal reward and will wipe the tears from his eyes and will say to him, Well done, my faithful servant. And this is the vision that he's given of Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. There's another image of the right hand that I want to draw our attention to that comes from the book of Genesis. As Jacob is blessing um, his sons. And he's, he's blessed uh, 11 of his sons, or is about to, and it's time to bless Joseph. And by blessing Joseph, he's going to deal with Joseph's sons, with uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we, we read about this in chapter 48, verse 13 and 14. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. We're familiar with the scene, right? Right? And Joseph, it knows his, his dad's eyes aren't really good. I'm going to handle this. You know, put the kids in the right spot. And the older one needs to be on, on dad's right. And the younger one needs to be on dad's left. And, and brings him up. And Jacob is Jacob. Right? He was Jacob even until he died. And he's like, and I could just see him going out like this. Oh, right? Can't you just picture that? You know, and he just switches it up. And, and there it is. But he lays his right hand on the younger head. And Joseph says, no, 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 Dad, it's this way. This is the older one. You need to put the hand of blessing. You need to put the hand of honor upon this one. And he says, I know what I'm doing. And he reminds him of that reality. Sorry about that tickle. He understood that the right hand is the hand of honor and the hand from which blessing is bestowed. And he recognized that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is on the right hand of the Father as the one who bestows honor and the one who bestows blessing. And he's exalted 
to that position as he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. So how should that affect us? That Jesus is exalted. Doesn't that elicit from us worship? Think of that. God has given to him the position of power, given to him the position of authority, given to him the position of honor and of blessing. Above everything else, above the greatest of the angels, angels that when people see the angels, they're tempted to fall down upon their faces and worship them because they're so exalted, and yet Jesus is so far beyond that. Shouldn't we worship such an exalted being? Which, which should begin by trusting him for our salvation and saying, Lord, you, you died for my sins. I give you my everything. And then abandon ourselves and say, you are king. You are the Lord. I worship you. As our king and as we honor him, we recognize that he's exalted, but we also recognize that he subdues our enemies. He says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A footstool. When, when we think of footstools, we think of, I don't know, I think of watching TV at night after supper, right? That's when my footstool is needed, right? Just bring that bad boy up and put my feet up and now it's right. And so it's a, a, an image of relaxation. But that's, that's not what the Greek word means, and that's not what the imagery is intended to, to come across. The, the Greek word itself wouldn't be footstool, but, but your foot be, what your foot is upon. And the image is of a conquering king with his foot upon the neck of the enemy who has come against his people to destroy them. It's the image of the foot of the Son of God coming down upon the head of the serpent and crushing the head of the serpent, even though in doing so the serpent is running its fangs and its venom up into the heel of that foot, but it is still going down and crushing that enemy of God. That's the image until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. That's the picture that he's giving us is of Jesus destroying our enemies, as we saw in the the catechism a little bit ago, that he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. And I've come to see in, in my life that a part of Christian maturity is when I see all his and our enemies more and more becoming the same. And that is to say, altogether too often, I don't view his enemies as mine. I'm on too close a friendly terms with the enemies of God. But as I grow in my faith, I begin to find that those that God despises, that which God despises, I begin to despise so that I'm able to fulfill what uh, Romans chapter 13 says, that love is to be without hypocrisy, hate what is evil, and cling to that which is good. And that's where I'm able to to come to that place in my maturity. So the first enemy of God's that needs to be ours is is the devil. And we saw already, I I alluded to Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you'll bruise him on the heel, or crush is a better word than than bruise. And that promise that, that Jesus would indeed have Satan under his heel at one point. 
There's a beautiful allusion to that in Romans chapter 16 as Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he says to the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your foot. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. You see what he's saying is he's showing us exactly what it means to be the body of Christ, that it is our foot which will also crush the head of the serpent. We as the church of God are able to see that and to receive a little bit of that exaltation that Jesus has and that great hope that can be ours, the confidence that the devil will not win, that God is determined that victory belongs to Jesus, which is why he can be seated at the right hand as king, knowing that he will conquer our enemy, the devil. He will also conquer our enemy, which is sin. We all struggle with sin. We all have different temptations that come at us and we find ourselves wrestling with throughout our lives. And we have at different times greater success in our battle against them, right? This is, this is our, our human experience. <clears throat> but I think that sometimes we can build a pessimism that robs us of victory over those temptations. A pessimism that can prevent us from seeing success over our sin. You see, he promises that he will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Are our sins enemies of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. We just don't view it that way, do we? We get tricked into thinking that our sins are pleasures. How often do we describe our sins in just that way? And so I've got to give up this pleasure. What's a pleasure of something that mocks my Lord and my Savior? I have to view it with different eyes and realize this, this, this may be disguised as an angel of light, but it's a d- demonic emissary to rob me of my soul and of the life and the joy that I may have in relationship with my Savior. And to begin to see sin in that way helps me out. But the other time is I can, I can begin to think that, that, that I, I can't win, right? I can be afraid that this sin is actually going to conquer me, that it's going to be too strong for me, that I, I, I have to give in. Last week we had a congregational meeting and we talked about the state of the PCA. And we talked a little bit about uh, the, the, the issue of what's called side B uh, homosexuality. Um, in, in which the idea is that, that a Christian can be identified as gay and still be just fine in their Christian life. That is, that they can be identified, and this doesn't just apply there, it applies all over the place, that I can identify with my sin, that my sin somehow defines who I am, and I can allow the sin to define who I am and still be walking with Christ. And what we see here is that's just impossible. But as long as I think that, as long as I think that, that, that I can never have this victory over my sin, as I think that I am identified by, the, by this sin, what happens to me is I'm always going to give in to it. But when I view my sin as my enemy, when I view my sin as one that Christ has conquered, when I view my sin recognizing the power of Jesus Christ is greater than this sin in my life, that empowers me to see transformation. Does it mean I'll never be tempted again? Goodness, no. Goodness no, but when that temptation comes, I now have a platform from which to battle it. And it's a platform of knowing that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. And that gives me the comfort and the hope 
that I can face that at that moment. So knowing that he submits, he subdues my enemies allows me then to say, and I'm going to submit to him who is my king and his rule over all the enemies. Honor your king. This is the first step of Jesus is Lord, is your Lord, is honor your king. And the second implication is that I learn to delight in his love. Look at verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels. When I think about angels, my first picture of them is mighty warriors with flaming swords. Right? That's just where I go. I think of, I think of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And I think, yeah, that was the angels, right? right? They spoke a word and made everybody blind. Power, yeah. And, they, and I think about that. And, and I think about them as being active, that, that he, he takes Lot and his family out, and they bring the fire and the brimstone. And I think of, of them in their power. I think of them with uh, David. And David sinned by, by numbering the people. And a single angel came in and wiped out 70,000 people in a day. That's what I think of when I think about angels as, as warriors and instruments of God's wrath. But there are different times in which I need to shift my perspective. And I think angels is one of those, that I need to look at them in a different light. Because I think that they're presented somewhat differently when I look at verse 14 than that of of the warrior and and instruments of wrath. And this happens at different times where we need a different perspective. In seminary, I preached a sermon one time um, in uh, our our preaching class, and Dr. Henry Krabendam was uh, the professor there. And uh, as most of you know, Dr. K is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, I just uh, love him. And a part of it goes back to his critique of my sermon. It's a sermon I'd preached probably about 10 times before, so I knew it well, and I knew I was killing it. I mean, it was good. Let me tell you, it was really good. I was just, I was rolling. I was preaching this just so powerfully, and, 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 and I'll never forget the critique he gave because it, it demanded of me that I grow up. Because he said, my perspective on the passage was that of an infant, not of a mature believer. And he opened it up differently to me. Let me show you the passage I'm talking about. It's in Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with weeping, with fasting, weeping, mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now that's, that's really where I focused, okay? That's where I landed on. I said, okay, we're going to talk about what this means, this weeping and, and, and this tearing your, your, your heart and not your garment and spent a lot of time on that. I was certain I was going all Jonathan Edwards, right? It was, it was just, it was, it was, I, I was shocked that people weren't weeping, you know, but, but uh, uh, nonetheless, and that's where I was. And I got done and, and Dr. Krabendam said, do you see you missed the whole point? You missed the very emphasis of the passage. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. The point of the passage is this tender invitation of your Savior saying, it's still possible. It's still here. Repentance is possible. There's a chance for you to be reconciled to me. Come now, even now. And it gave me not the commanding judge ready to throw lightning bolts from heaven, but the pleading Savior inviting me to come And it's proven by his description of God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And as an infant, I had totally missed that. 
And Dr. Kravendam invited me to come into maturity and to see in this something different. The same is true in my perspective on angels. That they're not instruments of God's wrath sent to destroy, to destroy those in rebellion, but they're ministering spirits sent for us who are to inherit eternal life. To shift our perspective and to see in angels the love of God manifest. I want to look at four different usages, four different times in the book of Acts in which people come in contact with angels. And we're going to take a little bit of time, and and we're not going to rush through this, because I want us to, to allow these four instances to instruct us as we think about angels. The first is in chapter 8 and verse 26. Uh, the instance is, remember that there's Philip, and uh, the, the angel comes to Philip. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. That's it. That's his interaction. What does the angel do? First of all, the angel shows up, and he says, Head south on this road. Right? That's all the instruction he's given. What does he do? Exactly what you do if an angel tells you to head south on a road. You head south on that road, and off he went. But as he's going, what happens? He's walking along, and there's a chariot. Oh, look at that. There's a chariot. Oh, look at that. There's an Ethiopian eunuch over there, an official. Oh, look at that. He's reading scripture. Let me go talk. And he goes over and talks, right? So there's this Ethiopian eunuch who has been in, in Jerusalem, and, and, and he's, he's riding along, and he's reading the scripture, and he can't understand it. Philip asks him, do you, asks him, do you know what this means? And he says, no, how am I supposed to know? And so someone tells me. Philip could have gone, yeah, good point, see ya. But he recognizes what's going on, didn't he? He recognized, here's a man from Ethiopia who has not grown up uh, uh, in the church, but he wants to know about it. Here's a man who needs to hear the gospel. And so what did the angel of the Lord do as God sent this angel? The angel came to a man who knew the gospel and sent him down to where they would intersect. Why? So that that man would share the gospel and the Ethiopian becomes a believer and then goes back to Ethiopia. And what did he probably do? Told everyone. Just like the Samaritan woman, right? How many millions have come to faith and might be able to trace it back to this moment in which God, in his love for man, loved so much that he sent an angel to Philip. And Philip was so attentive to the will of God that he was aware, and as he was walking, he was looking. I'm afraid many of us would have been walking along and said, dang, that's a nice-looking chariot. Right? And not taking the time to think, maybe this is why God sent me. Maybe this is what the angel wanted me to come here for. Maybe this was the whole point. I'd like us to develop that because God sends his angels to guide us in our lives and to send us to those places where there are opportunities for the gospel to go with power. In Acts chapter 10, verse 3, the story of Cornelius. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, 
What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. See, a different strategy this time that God has in sending the angel. Instead of sending the angel to the apostle who would go, he now sends the angel to the man who needs to hear. But it's a different situation. The Ethiopian eunuch wasn't a believer, but became a believer. At this point, uh, Cornelius was a believer. Now, he was a Gentile, but he was a proselyte. He was, he, was, he was believing in the Old Testament law. He had become a Jew. He was following the, the Jewish law to the best of his ability, and he was trying to, to live that out, and we, we see that in the description. But he didn't know what to do with Jesus. Kind of like the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews, right? That his people in the Old Testament didn't know what to do about Jesus, and there he was, and he needed to find out what to do with Jesus. And so what did God do? God went to him and said, Hey, Cornelius, you need to go down to Joppa, and there's this guy named Simon, who's also known as Peter. I don't know about you. Really? Really? I, I have a suspicion if you had said, You need to go see Peter. That would have been sufficient, right? But that's, that's not what the angel says. He says. If you go find this guy named Simon, who's also called Peter. Oh, by the way, he's staying with Simon, who's a tanner, and he's got a place over by the sea. It's like, here's his address, right? I want you to go there. Send your people there. Why? Because he needed to know what to do about Jesus, and who knew what to do about Jesus? The Apostle Peter. You see what's taking place at this. This is the first Gentile convert. This is the gospel now going into the Gentile community in which we see the promise of the New Testament coming to pass. That Jews and Gentiles are joined together as one in Christ. And there's no longer this separation. And how is he going about that? Through sending an angel to talk to this man and to guide him and to direct him how he might hear about Jesus. The third is in chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. Peter has been thrown in prison for preaching about Christ. We read in verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. First off, I find the scene amazing. Peter's asleep in jail. Okay, and he's got chains on. He's asleep. And you see the angel being sent from Jesus saying, go on down to Peter. He says, okay, so he shows up. Angel just came into the room. What's he doing? He's sleeping. I got him. Light. Let's fill it with light. Light! And he's got to poke him, right? He's got to poke him. The light didn't wake. He's, he's sound asleep. And he gets up and he says, now I'm going to take you to safety. Follow me. And gives him specific instructions and leads him out of the jail to safety. What an amazing moment. God loved Peter so much that he sent an angel to lead him out of jail and to safety. Can you imagine the effect that had on the disciples? I mean, they'd be like amazed that God sent an angel and set you out of the prison? Really? The, the guards 
would have to turn around and say, uh, yeah, he's gone, but uh, angel, more authority than you, Herod. We've got to let him go, right? He wins. We're not going to mess with an angel. We've heard about them. Right? And so there it is. And the impact that this had, but also the incredible encouragement and the knowledge. Is it conceivable that God still uses angels in our lives and guides us sometimes into safety? Some of you who are older like me might remember a, a song by Amy Grant from the 80s, Angels Watching Over Me, right? And at the time we thought, oh, that's all cutesy and kind of nice and yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what if it captured a reality that there are times that we, we, we don't even recognize that God is utilizing angels to guide our decisions and to guide the circumstances of our lives and in so doing is actually protecting us because it's not time yet. It's not time. It's conceivable. It's reasonable. There's examples of it in Scripture. And so I look at that. And so I see him working in Philip to, to bring the Ethiopian to salvation. I see him working in Cornelius to bring Cornelius and his household to, to salvation. I see him working in Peter to lead him to safety. And then we see it in chapter 27 as he works in the Apostle Paul's life. As Paul is uh, on, a, on a ship uh, headed toward Rome, and uh, it's, it's got some problems. And in chapter 27, verse 22, we read, Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. I just think this through, and I think if I'm on a ship out in the middle of the ocean, the ship is really the most important thing on my mind. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, but, but he says to him, well, you're going to lose the ship, but you won't lose your life. And okay, well, there's consolation in that. I'm, I'm concerned as to the reliability of that promise at that moment. So what does he do? How does he make sure that they can rely upon that? Verse 23, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. He says, I have a very promise from God that has come to me from an angel. We're not going to die. How comforting was that to Paul and to all of the individuals who were there and heard that? Tremendous promise. And it was the very promise coming from an angel that was so comforting to them. I want to turn back to Hebrews 13. And I want you to notice one word in particular in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Every single angel is a ministering spirit created by God for the benefit of his people. He made them he created them. He thought of their existence and their role because of his love for you. Wow. I was able to see a friend in uh, Birmingham when I was there, and uh, we go back for General Assembly. He and I are planning on getting together again, and, and, and I love this brother. He's... Uh, Throughout my life, he's had an, an impact, as long as I've known him, in that what he possesses is an ability to recognize God at work in his life. 
You know, it takes certain eyes to be able to see. Didn't Jesus say something like that? For he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. And, and this brother just has eyes to see. And he's always sensitive to what God is doing. And he's looking at each situation. And he knows God so well that he's able to, to anticipate and to see, oh, look at what God was doing here. And, and to adjust his life according to what God is doing. And it always draws him deeper in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I'm around him, I, I just long for that more and more. And it, just, it creates inside me this, this yearning to see God at work and to be aware of what he is doing And it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Let love of the brethren continue. That isn't really relevant to what we're saying, but how can I skip it? So anyway, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now the word angel... Um, is, is a, what you call a transliteration. That is to say they've, they've, they've taken the Greek word and they simply assigned an uh, English letter to it. So the Greek word is angelos, and so we get angel. Okay? And, and so that's kind of the way that that uh, <clears throat> works out. But what it means is messenger. That's a translation of Angelos, a messenger. Now, it's, it's conceivable in chapter 13 that he's really just saying that, you know, as you're taking care of strangers from time to time, you know, one of them will be a messenger, maybe a, a pastor. I think in the book of Revelation, when we read about the, the, the angel of the church of Ephesus, it's talking about the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He's the messenger. He's the one who's speaking to them. And I think that's what uh, the, the, the meaning of it is there. And it could be that that's the meaning here. But it could also be these divinely appointed ministers of God who are spiritual beings and who have this amazing power that there is a recognition that they are more involved in our lives than we think. And every now and then, when we're walking in obedience to the word of God, we find ourselves interacting with them and we're able to experience their, their influence. Not about you, but I, I, I want to be aware because they show me how much God loves me. I want to delight in his love, knowing that he's attentive to your needs. Back in Hebrews 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent or sent out? This is the Greek word uh, apostello, from which again the transliteration is apostle. Apostle. Uh, Dr. Zeller, when I was in seminary, who was my uh, Greek professor, uh, taught us apostle means uh, one sent with a mission or one sent with a purpose. That's what apostle means. I like that. I like that, that there's a purpose. God sends the angels with a purpose. They are his apostles. Jesus sends his angels to care for you. That is Jesus saying, I need to care for them, and I'm going to care for them through my angels. And they're sent to render service. To render service. Which is a, a, an interesting um, Greek word. The, if I just translated each word, it'd be uh, into deacons. It's weird, right? But what are Deacons. Deacons are service. Remember when deacons are first uh, 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 ordained in uh, Acts chapter 7? 
that there's a situation in which the, the church is getting together and the Greek-speaking widows are being ignored. And so they're not getting uh, the food that they're, they're sharing and possibly another way of understanding that they may not be even including in, in the communion service. And so they're just kind of isolated and they're left alone. And they said, well, this isn't fair. And the apostles say, you're right. And so we need someone who's going to care for your needs and who's going to care for those who are left out, who's going to care for the widows. And he establishes the office of deacons and they elect seven and those seven begin to serve in that way. It's the deacons. You know what your deacons do for you, right? They care for the needs of this flock in ways that most of the time we don't even notice, right? They're keeping things running so smoothly and making sure that everything's taken care of, all of the the things that we wouldn't normally notice, but they're doing it, why? Out of care for you. And if you will, the angels are the deacons' deacons, right? Who cares for the deacons to enable the deacons to care for us? It's the angels. So there's another way, and deacons you'll appreciate, that our deacons are angels in our midst, that uh, they begin to, to serve in that same way. What are they doing? They're rendering service to us that the angels are doing the same thing, that they're rendering service to you, to you who are to inherit eternal life. You see, God knows what you need. He knows what you want, too, and he recognizes they're not always the same. Maybe they're frequently not the same. Maybe more often than not, they're not the same. But anyway, but he knows what you need. We got notice from a friend asking for prayer that in the last uh, few weeks he's been having uh, significant headaches and they just didn't seem to go away and they were having some other problems that we're dealing with and they went into the doctor and as they began to look they found that his uh, uh, brain was, uh, there was fluid accumulating on his brain and it was putting pressure. And this was creating some problems, obviously, and they needed to do a, a CAT scan with contrast, but in order to do the CAT scan with contrast, they needed the contrast fluid, but there is none. Uh, and all of it's made in Shanghai. Shanghai is on lockdown because of COVID. And so they're hoping that's going to open up this week, and then in the next few weeks there'll be some contrast that'll come here. He's very high on a list, so he's supposed to get it soon so that they can do the test to see how bad it is, whether it's from uh, uh, an infection or if there's a mass. They just don't even know. So they don't know what to do. And so they're watching, you know, in case the symptoms get worse. And and if you think of it, you can pray for my friend, and we are. and, And yet, my conversation with my friend, I was just taken. He said, well... Yeah, God wanted to get my attention. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'd be asking for a stubbed toe or something, right? <laughs> That'd be a little easier, and he agreed, that would be better. But, but maybe this is actually what he needed so that he might trust God. He's, and he became very specific, and, and I now see this is action I need to take. This is, this is an area where I need to trust God more fully. And he's fully committed. There's no, no reservation at all. He's like, so I'm going there, and I'm just so happy that I have this opportunity to trust God in this situation. And I was just, I left that conversation just wanting to trust God more in myself and, and inspired to believe the message that we've heard. And it is true. And here's a man who recognized that, who saw that, who knows that God knows what he needs in his ministry. You see, God sees what's going on in your life. God hears your prayers. God cares about you. 
And God is determined to act for your good and his glory. I mentioned that angels can be translated as messenger. It's with that in mind that I want to read to you the third verse of uh, one of my favorite hymns, and it is my favorite verse of one of my favorite hymns, More Love to Thee. It says, Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are your messengers, and sweet their refrain, when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. The first century Jewish believers believed in Jesus. They'd grown up in the church, the Old Testament church, under the Old Covenant, and they knew that Jesus was the Christ, and they believed him, and they loved him. But they didn't know how he fit in their religion. They didn't have any categories for that. They didn't know what to do. And so the author of Hebrews wrote a letter to them to tell them what to do about Jesus, and he starts out by showing them that Jesus is God. And helping them to understand that and to look at his majesty and in his majesty to see that he is the son of God. In his majesty to see that he is the creator and in his majesty to see that he is their Lord. We're invited to see the same truth, that Jesus is your Lord. Therefore, honor your king and delight in his love. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for us as your people that you will expand our vision of Jesus. Help us to see him for who he is. Help us to be in awe of his majesty. Help him to love him more. Lord Jesus, you are our Lord. And we give ourselves over to you to honor you, our King, and to delight in your love. Spirit of God, empower us that we might do precisely this. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.